The Bible has a lot to say about endurance, about, about the importance of perseverance in the life of faith. And when you think of endurance, what comes to your mind? Could it be something like this? You can have that first picture, please. When you think of endurance, is this what you think of? As believers, I think we sometimes might feel like this man in the picture. We can feel alone and weary. We can feel spiritually parched. And because we live in a culture that does not often affirm our faith, we may feel like God just wants us to sort of tough it out inch by inch as we crawl forward. However, I don't think that's what God has in mind for his church. I don't believe he wants us to feel as if we're just hanging on for dear life. I don't believe he wants us to feel like we're crawling forward alone, but instead to move forward together as a community of faith. Endurance in the church is not supposed to feel like a struggle for survival, but instead it's to be a steady stride toward victory. We need to understand what that looks like. And we're given a great example in the Bible because we have some spiritual ancestors who were noted for their faithful endurance. These believers lived and worshipped in an ancient city called Philadelphia, not the one in America. Philadelphia in Asia Minor. And life for them wasn't easy. So Jesus wrote them a letter of encouragement. It's a letter of love to remind them that that for the church of Jesus Christ, endurance always is hopeful because endurance always points to a victorious future. So this morning, let's see what we can learn from this letter given by Jesus in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, starting in verse 7. This is Jesus speaking. He is dictating these words to the apostle John. And Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Now, in each of these seven letters that we find in the book of Revelation, Jesus identifies himself in a way that is appropriate for the particular readers. And for the believers in Philadelphia, he makes this statement about the key of David, about opening and and shutting things. And to us, the meaning of what Jesus says may not immediately be clear. So this is a great chance for us to understand that Scripture is interconnected and we can use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And first, with a little bit of digging, we find that Jesus has picked this particular comment about the key of David from the book of Isaiah chapter 22, where it says, I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Okay, so now we know where the phrase comes from. But what does it actually mean? Let's think for a moment about the importance of a key. If I lose the key to my house, I'm powerless and I can't get in. 
if I give you the key to my house, I'm giving you the power to enter it. I'm giving you the authority to enter it. Whoever holds the key wields power and authority to open and shut doors. And in this case, the key of David is the power and authority to control the doors of the future kingdom of God. And we know this because there are numerous Old Testament prophecies about a day when God will establish a new eternal kingdom built around a descendant of King David. And for example, in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is given a prophecy about, by God about the future kingdom. And here's the final line of that prophecy. Your house, this is God speaking to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Well, so let's put these pieces together. David is not going to live forever. So how will he have an eternal kingdom? Jesus. Now, the, the believers in Philadelphia know their Bible, and they know that Jesus is a direct descendant of King David. And through the letter that Jesus dictates, he's now telling them, I am the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. Jesus is the one who will bring about God's eternal kingdom. Jesus is the one who opens and shuts the gates to that kingdom. Jesus has the power and authority to do that because he holds the key. God's given him the key. And Jesus is telling the Philadelphian believers this so they will have hope for the future which will enable them to persevere in the life of faith in the present. And they need that reassurance because they live in a city where it would be so easy to surrender, to fear, or to doubt, or to unbelief. And there are two primary reasons for that. First, Philadelphia is it's a really unique city. It was started in a strategic location for the express purpose of extending Greek culture to overpower other surrounding cultures. Now, that's unique. That's not why most cities get started. Cities get started because people stop and find natural resources that allow them to earn a living. People stop at a a crossroads near a trade route so they can engage in commercial trade. Or maybe a nation builds a military outpost for the purpose of defense and and a city springs up around it. None of that applies to Philadelphia. They were started to achieve cultural domination. They were succeeding. And so in that region, Greek culture was stamping out other languages and philosophies and lifestyles and spiritualities. And while there are some good things about ancient Greek culture, many parts of it are distinctly unchristian, particularly their worship of pagan gods. And so people in Philadelphia who become followers of Jesus are under consistent cultural pressure. They must constantly evaluate where do we engage the culture to share our faith? And where do we draw a line and resist the culture? And that's never an easy question to answer. It wasn't easy for them. 
It's not easy for us. We need God's wisdom and the guidance of the Holy Spirit to help us faithfully endure in the midst of an unfaithful culture. And then there's another thing. Philadelphia was built directly on an earthquake fault. Not good master planning. In 17 AD, there was a major quake quake that destroyed 10 nearby cities throughout that region, and Philadelphia suffered aftershocks for years and years and years. Few things in life, I think, are more frightening than going through an earthquake. I spent much of my life in Southern California. I've been through three big ones. They're scary. Here in the Pacific Northwest, we're constantly told, oh, the big one is coming. It's a reality that we live with. It's a reality that Philadelphians lived with. And it's a reality which reminds us that good old solid earth isn't so solid. It's not solid. It's not unchanging. And so we need to look beyond this world for stability and meaning, and reassurance. And so for both of these reasons, the challenges of culture and the uncertainty of our own physical world, we must look to the coming kingdom of God promised by Jesus. That's where our hope lies. And he holds the key to that kingdom. And so we then need to hold on to Jesus. And as we hold on to Jesus, then he will help us faithfully endure. That's what Jesus writes about in the next part of the letter, starting in verse 8. He says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Oh, remember that that line. We're going to come back to that. I placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you've kept my word. And have not denied my name. Think about that. Despite cultural pressure, holding on to Jesus, they're proclaiming his name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you because God loves his children. Since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Jesus always sees what his followers are doing. And in some of the letters, he's pointed out where the church is failing. But here, though, he points out the fact that the church is doing well, despite the fact that they evidently only have a little strength, as we read in verse 8. I think that idea of little strength might be a comment about, about their lack of social status in the community. Believers clearly are in the minority in Philadelphia, so their influence is limited, yet they're not afraid of their culture. They don't hunker down and hide out. They're not embarrassed to be known as Christians. They proudly bear the name of Christ. So they're not surrendering, holding on, 
holding on to Jesus. Jesus wants them to keep doing so. And he says that in response to their faithfulness, he's going to keep their enemies at bay. He will watch over this church. He will protect them from the future judgment that is coming on the whole world. That's what Jesus will do. What the church must do is endure patiently and not surrender until Jesus returns. And the way to endure is to hold on to what they have, as Jesus says in verse 11. That is a crucial statement from our Lord. Hold on to what you have. It's a statement I believe that every church must ponder. And we need to ask a couple of critical questions. Do we know what we are supposed to hold on to? And do we know what we need to let go of? What we hold on to is Jesus and his message. We hold on to Jesus who brings us the message of God's good news about the future kingdom. We hold on to Jesus, the Savior who died and who rose from the grave to make a way so that we could join him in his kingdom. And we hold on to Jesus because he watches over us and he gives us the wisdom we need to navigate life as broken people in a broken world. We hold on to Jesus. Sadly, Sometimes as people of faith, we get sidetracked. And we wind up holding on to secondary things that we really need to let go of. And we do this because we get confused about what matters most. The Jewish people fell into that trap. In the first century, there was a group called the Pharisees, and believe it or not, they were sincerely trying to reinvigorate the spiritual life of the Jewish people. But instead of focusing on simple biblical faith, they led people astray because they kept mixing in religious practices and religious traditions and stirred all that up along with Scripture. And Jesus rebuked them for that approach. He said, because of your traditions, you've nullified the effect of the word of God. Now that is a strong indictment. I don't want to ever be guilty of nullifying the effectiveness of the word of God because I'm holding on to a beloved tradition. And I don't think you do either. And yet we need to be honest that at times it's so easy for us to head down that path. Because we can love our traditions. Traditions can and do have deep meaning for us. And they can make us comfortable. Because they're familiar and and they're heartwarming. And yet traditions are not the essentials of the faith. I had a friend named David for many years. He's passed away now, but his ministry was to be a consultant to churches. And he would meet with leaders of local congregations and talk with them about their struggles and try to get them to refocus and get back on their mission. 
the mission of reaching spiritually lost people and helping them become followers of Jesus and grow into faithful disciples. And over a couple of decades, David interacted with scores of churches and many of them refused to embrace the necessary changes they needed to make that would keep them effective at changing their neighborhoods and communities. Many of those churches wound up closing their doors. I once asked David, how can that happen? And I've never forgotten his reply. I'd like you to listen carefully to these words. They're seared into my brain. Too many churches are backing into the future, looking forward to the past. And when David said that to me, it broke my heart. You see, when a church is looking mostly to the past, it means they're not usually anchored in the message and ministry of Jesus. Instead, they probably made the same mistake as the Pharisees, and they're holding on to various traditions and practices and preferences. They've made a priority of secondary things that distract them from the mission of the church. You know, it's been interesting, over the course of my life, I've listened to lots and lots of Christians complain about their churches, and I've watched lots of believers leave their churches, and the reasons are informative. I've rarely heard someone complain about their church with these words. You know, I'm so upset because we've lost sight of our mission. That's not why people typically complain or leave. They almost always do so for secondary reasons. And I've kind of kept a growing list over the years. And it seems that the complaints I've heard usually come from a list of three things. Number one, the church changed something from the way we've always done it. And it could be music or Lighting or seating or carpet or colors or the order of worship. And when we do that, we're holding on to the past instead of looking to the future. When churches do that, they're putting traditions ahead of mission. Our mission to love one another our mission to serve those in need, our mission to help spiritually lost people become followers of Jesus Christ. That's the priority. Number two, the church isn't meeting my needs. And I've heard a long list of needs. Now, now we all have needs, but if we make that the priority, then we're focused inward and not outward. We're putting personal preferences ahead of our mission. And the third reason, third complaint I get, angry at so-and-so. And you see, when someone settles for a broken relationship, and they're holding on to their anger, and they're holding on to their hurt, and if they leave a church over that, then they're not going to be able to move into the future in a healthy way because they're going to be hobbled by a wounded past. And that's putting our emotions ahead of our mission. 
And here's what's really tragic. When we hold on to our hurts, you know what we're actually doing? We're saying we don't have faith. Because Jesus says he can help us to love one another and put up with one another and forgive one another. And he can't and he will. But only if we yield to the Holy Spirit and pursue reconciliation. Holding on to hurts and brokenness. God wants so much better than that for each of us. But here's the point. What I want us to see is that none of us is exempt from this, and it's incredibly easy for us to hold on to things other than the mission of the church. But holding on to secondary things is not faithful endurance. It's actually a form of surrender. Patient, faithful endurance means holding on to Jesus. It means holding on to the mission of the church and putting secondary things in second place. That's what God wants for every one of his churches. That's what God wants for the believers in Philadelphia. To stay focused. And to help them stay focused, Jesus reminds them that he has set before them an open door, which I mentioned in verse 8. That's this open door to the kingdom of God. But it's an open door not just for us. Because the church in Philadelphia, this church was full of people who are faithful to God's word. It's a church full of people who are not ashamed of Jesus. It's full of people who are looking to the future, which means that this is an open door not just for them, it's an open door to their mission. It's an open door to love their neighbors and to draw those neighbors to Jesus. Now that's a way to endure victoriously, to hold on to Christ and to bring people far from God into his kingdom. The Philadelphian church was doing it. And we can continue to do it as well as we continue to walk through the doors that God has opened for us. We need to think and pray and be so aware of the open doors that we have to the mission that God has entrusted to us. We've been talking about this in recent weeks. Individually, we each have an open door to go out and love our neighbors, the people who live all around us. We are surrounded by people who are spiritually adrift and far from God. And I believe God has providentially placed each one of us in our neighborhoods to love those neighborhoods. And I believe that as we open the door of relationship that God can show us ways to hopefully draw these people to Jesus Christ. It's an open door. Are we going to walk through it? As a church, we have an open door into our neighborhood through our signature ministry of Kidmax. It is an amazing thing that every Friday afternoon, we have more than 50 kids here from our local elementary school for an afternoon of games and activities and fun and sports and a short Bible lesson. And we get the chance to get to know these kids and their families. Some of them are faithful believers. Many of these families are very far from God. 
We have the opportunity to build trusting relationships. So hopefully we can draw some of these people to Jesus Christ. It's an open door that God has given us. We want to walk faithfully through that open door. And as we just heard from Matt this week, we opened a new door into the youth of our church and community by launching this gaming ministry. We want to connect with teens on their turf by investing in something that they are passionate about so we can get to know them and earn their trust. And perhaps, perhaps we might help some of them have a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. Jesus opens the door of his kingdom to us and we have an open door to try and bring people with us. And that's what happens when a church holds onto Jesus and lets go of secondary things. Hold on to Jesus and the mission he has given us. And one of the greatest promises of all is that as we hold on to Jesus, guess what? He will hold on to us. And that's how Jesus finishes this letter. Verse 12, the one who is victorious. I love that phrase because in every one of these letters, Jesus isn't talking about survival and eking it out. He's talking about victory. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I also will write on them my new name. And then this pithy ending, every letter. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's a challenge from Jesus. Are we listening to the Holy Spirit? So Jesus concludes this letter with some words of hope and words of promise, reminding us that a faithful life is a victorious life. And in this context, victory means the victory of faith. It's victory over sin. It's victory over death. It's victory that enables us to spend eternity in the presence of our loving God. Now Jesus began the letter by talking about the key of David, the key that opens the door to the kingdom of God, and he wraps up the letter by coming back to that point with this reference to the capital city of God's future kingdom. It's a city called the New Jerusalem. That's going to be our capital. And Jesus uses this very poetic language to tell us that if we are faithful, we're going to be pillars in God's temple. And he's going to write on us God's name and the name of the city. Now, for for those of you that love to take the Bible really literally, I'm not sure I'd read this that way. I I don't think God's going to make us into stone pillars in the temple. And I don't think he's going to tattoo these words on our bodies. Though he certainly could. I think it's a way to explain that God in the next life is going to honor the faithful disciples of Jesus. And he's going to place his identity upon us. And no one ever will be able to take us away from Jesus. 
we hold on to him in this life through faithful endurance, he will hold on to us forever in the next life. And holding on to him means letting go of the non-essentials and living out the mission that he has entrusted to us to love one another, to serve people in need and give them a hand up, to be diligent about finding lost people, striving to prayerfully lead them to Jesus Christ. I hope we're listening to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And I hope this letter has given us a different picture of endurance. Faithful endurance in the church is not supposed to look like that picture we saw earlier, this picture of a parched man in a desert struggling for survival. Faithful endurance for believers, victorious endurance for believers, looks a lot more like this. I like that picture a lot better. As a church, we do not endure alone. We endure together. We endure victoriously by looking to the future, not to the past. And we live each day with the constant hope of Jesus' promise, the promise of victory when we all stand before God in his future kingdom. And we endure victorious by looking outward, not inward. And we walk through the open doors God has given us. And we ask him to lead us to people who are spiritually adrift. And we love those people. And we share with them the message of Jesus and the coming kingdom of God. And as we do that faithfully by God's grace, we will bring some of them with us into this gathering. And Jesus will hold on to them forever as well. And they, along with us, can worship and celebrate and be bathed in God's incredible love forever. That is our hope. That is our mission. And that's how we endure victoriously.